Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. No one went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with, great, with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat down. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forth, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, <clears throat> for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them to you to take them you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went into, up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, 
because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that now as we give our attention to your word that you would pay attention to us. God, we confess that even just hearing these words makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church, that we might be more like Jesus for having spent this time together. We pray this to you, God, our Father, in the name of Christ the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's hard for me really to think of a passage in the Bible that has a greater potential to land with us differently depending on where we hear it. We hear these words some of the words uh, in this passage uh, devote them to destruction with the edge of the sword and we kind of cringe. If we were to read those same words downstairs in Sunday school, kids might get up and start marching around the classroom. <laughs> you know, um, They land differently de- de- depending on how we hear them. Richard Dawkins, who is It's been called one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. Um, Had some choice words to describe passages like this in the Bible. He, He somewhat famously wrote these words. He said, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. It's kind of a mouthful. (laughs) Um, But other people have, have read this passage, Joshua, Uh, in the Battle of Jericho, and they've had a very different reaction. Uh, You might know the song. I'm trying to think if I want to sing this or not. All right, let's do it. Joshua, Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Hallelujah. Uh, A couple weeks ago, when Brett and Matt and I were uh, meeting to kind of plan songs for the service, I, I sang that and kind of laughed and said, you know, it's, this, it's that kid's song, right? I, I discovered this week that's not actually a kid's song. Um, it, it was probably made famous, was recorded in the 50s by Mahalia Jackson, but it, originally it, it was an Afri- African-American spiritual probably written by slaves in the early 1800s. And for enslaved people, it was a song of hope 
and it was a cry for justice, and it was a confession of faith that God saw them and that he would fight on their behalf. So the question then is, which is the right take on this story? And what I think it shows us is that perspective really does matter, doesn't it? The way that we see the perspective we bring to a story really makes a big difference in how uh, we respond to it. Um, So to give you an example of the way perspective makes a difference, think about the story of Star Wars. Everybody has seen Star Wars probably, right? And so we know the story of Star Wars is that the Imperial forces under the orders from the cruel Darth Vader, uh, they have held Princess Leia hostage and unlikely heroes Luke Skywalker and Han Solo along with some reclaimed droids lead the brave rebel alliance to free the princess and restore freedom and justice to the galaxy. That's the story of Star Wars you know. But there's this kind of alternate take on the story of Star Wars, and it goes something like this. Members of the extremist religious group Rebel Alliance plot a series of coordinated attacks against the government. Terrorist Luke Skywalker, likely with inside help from his father, leads an assault triggering a catastrophic chain reaction that destroys an important space station resulting in the murder of thousands and thousands of government employees. (laughs) Same facts, right? Different perspective. So which perspective captures the real story? This past week I uh, finished reading a book by Jonathan Haidt who is a um, social psychologist, he's a professor at NYU, and um, finished this book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. It's an amazing book because what he's trying to do is write as an observer of culture to answer the question, why do people make the sorts of moral judgments that we do? Why do we think that some things are right and other things are wrong? And he describes what seems like common sense to probably most of us here in this room He uses the term, the ethic of autonomy, to describe the way we tend to think about what's right and wrong. And the ethic of of autonomy says that human beings ought to be free to satisfy their wants, needs, and preferences as they see fit, as long as they're not harming anybody else or violating their rights. That is what seems like common sense to most of us. But height shows that people who think that way are actually really weird. And, and by weird, he doesn't mean they're rare or that they're strange. He, weird is actually an acronym that means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. It's sort of a covert way for him to say that perspective is actually the perspective of a very small and frankly fairly elite group of human beings. And so for most of the world, in addition to the ethic of autonomy, um, the, most of the world also has this moral impulse that he, two additional moral foundations that he calls the, uh, the first one is the ethic of community, which is based on the idea that people exist in relationship to others, like a family or a team or a tribe or a nation, and people therefore have an obligation to their communities. And then the second, or I guess it'd be the third actually, is the ethic of divinity, which is based on the idea that people are not just animals that function on like an, a gut instinct level for survival, but rather human beings are the children of God and should treat our bodies as temples of the divine. 
So which perspective is right? Which, which moral impulses ought to guide our decisions about what is right and wrong? Because if we say that our perspective is right, what feels like common sense to us, um, if we say that that's what's right, what we're doing is we're actually, we're violating the moral foundation upon which we build our own ethic. Because what we're saying then is that um, this idea that we should please our own whims as long as we're not hurting anybody else, and these, the, the, the ethic of community and the ethic of divinity are wrong, we're violating our own moral foundations by denying others, the vast majority of the planet, their right to satisfy their needs and wants and desires as they see fit. And so, in the book, there's this question where you, you kind of wonder, is he just gonna land in a place where we kind of throw up our hands and say, well, there's different perspectives and who can know what's really right? And what Jonathan Haidt does in the book is he, he argues that by understanding other people's perspectives, we will develop sympathy for other people, and our sympathy for other people who aren't like us will temper our worst instincts. And I have to say that I think that's part of it, but it's not sufficient. Uh, and it's not sufficient because, uh, well, for one reason, because the sorts of people that most need to develop sympathy for others are the least likely to actually do so. So what are we left with? Well, um, theologian John Frame has, a, I think, a great solution to this problem, a much better solution. Because Frame says that while we are finite as human beings, uh, because we are finite, we can only see things from our own perspective, but God's omniscience means that God sees all things from all perspectives at all times. Not, not only including actual perspectives, but other possible perspectives. That God sees everything from every perspective, real or possible. And so our goal is to enrich our own perspective by looking at things from different angles, by talking to other people, by observing different places and cultures, but especially, Frame says, by listening to God's perspective. And that's what we have in God's word that by listening to God's perspective, we begin to develop a perspective that isn't simply limited to our own experience and knowledge, but is actually informed by the one who sees all and knows all. And I say all of that to say, you know, I've been, I've been hinting at this for weeks, that the book of Joshua is gonna have some tough stuff in it, and we're getting to one of those passages today. And this passage is really about the judgment of God. And I know that the word judgment feels like a bad word in our culture, but what I want us to do this morning is to try to hear God's perspective on judgment because I believe that if we do so, we'll find that God's judgment doesn't make us more judgmental. In fact, understanding God's judgment is the key to avoiding judgmentalism ourselves, and it compels us to seek divine mercy. So four points this morning that I want you to see from this passage about the judgment of God. And the first is this, that God's judgment is God's. It's not ours, God's judgment is God's. In this passage we're looking at, it's the continuation of what we talked about last week and, and one of the things that we saw last week is that God is holy and that that means that God is not on our side and he's not on the side of those you know, we perceive as 
other than us. He's not a party to the us versus them mentality that dominates so much of our lives. He's different than us. He's holy. He is on his own side. And and that's important to remember here because this isn't so much about God choosing one side or the other in a sort of tribal dispute or a dispute or a war between the nation of Israel and the city of Jericho. What's happening here is that God is carrying out his will in human history. God is the one that is carrying out all of the action in this passage. God is the agent in this, in this passage. And so, I mean, a few places you see that. Verse two, it says, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. Not Joshua, go up and take Jericho, but I have given Jericho into your hands. You see 10 times in this passage that it mentions the Ark of the Lord or the Ark of the Covenant, and we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God makes his presence known on the earth, and so by carrying around this Ark, uh, it's emphasizing that all the, everything that happens in this passage doesn't happen because Israel has a very skilled military. They, they don't have a skilled military. They don't have a military at all. They just have, you know, men. <laughs> who've been wandering in the wilderness for for a long time. But all of this happens because God is present. And then towards the end of the chapter, they circle the city for the seventh time, the priests blow the trumpets, and it says that Joshua tells the people, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. And what this passage is emphasizing is that God's judgment is God's. It's not ours, it's not Israel's. It belongs to God. And I think that this is very important for us to understand because I think without really thinking too hard about it, we can slip in this assumption that goes something like this. Back in the day, a long time ago, and, and by back in the day, that, that may be like in the 1950s or like the 1800s or, you know, 1000 BC, whatever, whatever we mean by that. Back in the day, everybody believed there was a God who judged people and that made people very judgmental. And so now, in our culture, we've gotten rid of the idea of God so that people won't be judging people anymore. We kind of have that general assumption and, and the question I would want to ask in response to that is how is that going for us? <laughs> right? uh, we've gotten rid of the idea of God and so nobody is judging anybody anymore, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, according to many recent studies, Americans are more divided and polarized than at ever, uh, at any point in our history. And um, I, a couple years ago, I saw a TV show called Studio 60 that had a great line that summarized this reality. And um, one character was talking about the parties in the culture wars, and the other character says, I never really understood what the culture wars were about. And the first character explains, he says, well, it's simple. Your side hates my side because you think we, you think we think we hate you. I'm gonna read this so I say it right, okay? <laughs> your side hates my side because you think we think you're stupid. And my side hates your side because we think you're stupid. <laughs> right? And so we're living in a time where a big part of the narrative is that belief in God makes people judgmental and yet getting rid of God has made things even worse. And here's the thing, that's not just happening for people out there, right? That's happening in here. Um, We all long to be right, 
and we long to be seen as right, and often we long to be seen right in contrast to others who are wrong. And we judge people constantly. And we judge people for really, really petty reasons. My family knows that I judge people all the time. Um, I judge people for how they drive. (sighs) You know, anybody driving slower than me is in my way and a fool, and anybody driving faster than me is a reckless maniac. I mean, I drive the perfect speed all the time. It's amazing. (laughs) Or I judge people for their grammar. Uh, Please don't say these ones or those ones. It's just these or those. Please don't say irregardless. It's just regardless. Uh, Really, really important things here, right? Ashley and I went to our 20-year college reunion yesterday. Uh, We've never been to a college reunion, but now that we live here, uh, we went to college in Santa Barbara, so we went to our 20-year college reunion yesterday, which is a great place to go and judge people. (laughs) Right? Um, You know, who got fat, who got divorced, who made something of themselves. Uh, It's fantastic, and uh, this is funny because without even mentioning this, at one point one of my sons came up to me and said, Dad, you look a lot better than most of the people that you went to college with. (laughs) And like, how did he know to say that? And the reason he said is because I still have hair. So I'll take it. Um, You know, (laughs) okay. So we have all of these reasons to judge each other and they're all really, you know, often pretty trivial. Our judgments are often trivial and inconsistent and they're harsh. Uh, For some of us, we turn that judgment inward upon ourselves and we beat ourselves up for things that we have said or things that we have done. And so what I'm driving at is that getting rid of God doesn't get rid of judgment. In many cases, it actually makes it worse because instead of having one judge who is perfectly just and consistent, we have now 7.8 billion judges who's, you know, who are judging each other based on the spirit of the moment and the whims of their own preferences. And the real problem with that is that there are actually really terrible things that happen in our world, aren't there? Uh, there's murder and abuse, there's racism, the misuse of power, and on and on. And we long for somebody who can do something about it. But if there is no God, then who has the right to judge? And who can we entrust ourselves to? To whom can we entrust ourselves? And who has the ability to do anything about it? And so the point of this passage is this, God's judgment is God's. God is the judge. And the paradox, I think, of that statement is that entrusting ourselves to the God who judges without partiality and without changing to the whims of the cultural moment or because he's just having a bad day, entrusting ourselves to God is what silences our inner need to judge one another. It silences our need to judge one another. Habakkuk 2, verse 20 says, The Lord is in his temple, let all the earth keep silent. Stunning, God is on the throne. He is holy and he is good. And that just silences our need to judge one another. And I think what we need to take away from, okay, so what does that have to do with us? I think what we need to take away from this is, 
is the reality that this work is God's work. God is the agent in this passage. God is the agent of his work in the world. And you know, there's a lot of people in our time who think something like, you know, the problem with the church is that people think God is on their side and that gives them the confidence to do really horrible things in God's name. And I think we have to say, yeah, that is 100% true. But then the solution is not to give up on God, it's to come back to his word and to see what God is doing here because God is not saying, I have come to be on the side of you who do horrible things in my name. He's come to say, I am the one who is doing all of this. God is the primary agent in human history. And what I think, when he tells us, there's this strange thing where he, he, you know, he tells the Israelites to walk around the city once a day, and then on the seventh day to walk around it seven times, and it's like, what, what are they, why is he doing, why does he tell them to do that? And I'm gonna say a little bit more about that in a minute, but I think, <laughs> I think part of what's happening is, is something like this. Have you ever had a, kid, whether your own or somebody else, you're trying to do something and a kid really wants to help. And you know, like I like to build stuff in my garage with wood and my kids want to help and sometimes I'm like, you know what really helped me out? Is if you take this piece of wood that has a bunch of nails and just pull all of the nails out of that piece of wood. And they do that and then I tell them, you know what would be really great now that you're finished with that is if you could take those nails and hammer them into that piece of wood. Because that would, that would really help me out. And it's like, it's keeping them busy so I can <laughs> do something, right? I have a friend named Bob Klein who's a pastor in San Diego. I worked, um, he was my boss a while ago. And uh, he, he tells this story that when, his, when he was a kid, his, um, his dad traveled for work and sometimes his dad would take him with him on a work trip and, and Bob would sit in the passenger seat and his dad would hand him like a box of files and say, hey, could you just um, alphabetize these for me? And, and Bob said, you know, I probably didn't do a very good job and he probably didn't need them alphabetized anyway, but, but I was going to work with dad. And, and Bob says, like his work as a pastor, he increasingly thinks of himself as, you know, my job here is just going to work with dad. And I, and I think that that's something of what's happening in this passage. God is the one who is doing his work in the world. And we get to be near him, and we get to see him do what he's doing, and every once in a while, we might get to play a very small part in what God is doing. But the work is God's work. Okay, so that's the first thing. God's judgment is God's. But secondly, God's judgment is just. It is just. When we read this passage, it's easy to assume that everybody in Jericho was just like hanging out, minding their own business, and God shows up and starts slaughtering people. (laughs) And that is not at all what's happening here. Um, I've been reminding you as we've been working through Joshua that this whole narrative of God giving this land to his people is about God fulfilling the promise that he had made to Abraham over 400 years earlier. And... um, In Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and you are gonna be a blessing to the whole world and I'm gonna give you this land, but not yet. So why doesn't God give it to Abraham immediately? And it says in Genesis 15, verse 16, it says, because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And what this is saying to us is that God is being patient. 
that, that there are people living in the land that God is giving to Abraham's descendants. And the people who lived in the land of Canaan, the, the Amorites and the, uh, the other word, the other people you know, who we have a hard time pronouncing their names, this, they live in this land that God has given to his people and the Canaanites and the Amorites who, who must be kicked out in order for God, God's people to enter the land, they were horrible. They, they were wicked people and God was patient. And for over 400 years, God waited in the hopes that they would repent. And some of them did, and we see that with Rahab in this, in this passage here, that, that it was actually God's kindness to wait and allow them time to repent. But most of them didn't, and it was really bad. Um, I'm gonna read a couple of examples of what Deuteronomy and Leviticus tell us, the people, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, what they were like, and, and this is pretty hard stuff. Deuteronomy 15, or Deuteronomy 18, rather, says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, these people were burning their sons and daughters as sacrifices to pagan gods. It's horrible. They were, um, you know, dabbling in dark magic and divination, not cute like Harry Potter, right? but like real, they're manipulating dead bodies because they thought that it would allow them to manipulate the future. It, it, was, a, it was a grotesque place. Leviticus 18 talks about the behavior of the people living in the land, and it, it talks there about sexual relations with their fathers, with their mothers, with their children, with the spouses of their children, about adultery, bestiality, and false worship. And so here's the point. Jericho was a grotesque place. It was not a safe place. It was a place where children were preyed upon, where children were used to fulfill the sexual urges of those more powerful than themselves and sacrificed to appease pagan gods. And there's archaeological evidence that confirms all of this in really horrible ways. And all of this was taking place in this land and God waited and God was patient until finally God can wait no more. And so the destruction of Jericho is about God's justice breaking in to human history of God saying, this will not happen anymore. It's God hearing the cries of the vulnerable and the weak and the children and those who are suffering and it's God responding with justice and cleansing the land and giving the land to his people as a place to call their own where God, where God will bless his people so that his people will be a blessing to the whole world. And so the question that I think that this poses to us is this. You know, when we read passages like this in the Old Testament, sometimes we cringe and we say, I don't think a God of love would will wipe out people like this. But then we look at our world and we see so much evil and injustice and we see the strong and powerful oppressing the vulnerable. We see human trafficking stripping children from their parents. We see violence, we see aggression, we see hatred and racism. And sometimes we see these things and we think something like, if there really is a God, why doesn't he do something? 
And the follow-up to that question that I want to ask you is this. What do you think it would look like if he did something? Would it not look like this? God, why don't you do something? Aren't we all crying out to God to come and judge with justice? And that's what God is doing here. God's judgment is just. But here's the problem with answering, asking that question. God, why don't you do something? The problem with asking that question is we cannot look or call upon the justice of God to come and intervene in the lives of other people and not also see that a just God would come and intervene in our lives as well. What about us? If God judges with absolute justice, we have no place to stand. Alexander Solzhenitsyn um, was imprisoned in communist USSR in the Gulag, um, and he wrote after he got out, he was an atheist, um, but he was critical of the communist government, and in the Gulag, he refound his childhood faith in Christ, and he later wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago in which he said this. He said, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If God's judgment is just, then where can we stand? And so the third thing that I want you to see in this passage is that there is mercy in God's judgment. And we see this in Rahab. And this is important because if we look at this passage, um, there, there are some who, who would look at this passage and say this passage is about genocide, it's about ethnic cleansing. And I think we need to be sensitive to that concern, but, but earlier in this book, God had made a promise to Rahab that because of her faith and because she hid the spies that God would save her and God makes good on that promise and it says in verse 25, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive and she has lived in Israel until this day, meaning at whatever point the book of Joshua was being written, they were still there. And in fact, if, if you continue reading the story of, of the Old Testament or even in the first chapter of Matthew where it gives the genealogy of Jesus. You see that Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. And so what this shows us is that if God's judgment here is just based on race or ethnicity, that, that Rahab never would have been saved. But God saves her and her family because he is merciful. Because he is merciful. When Rahab heard about the coming judgment Right, that's what she says to the spies. We've heard what God has done to you and everybody is melting before you. She's heard about the coming judgment and when she hears about the coming judgment, she entrusts herself to God and she entrusts her family to God and God saved her because God is merciful. See, God's judgment is based on his justice but his salvation is based on his mercy and it comes through faith Salvation comes through faith in the God who is merciful. And Rahab is a picture for all of us of the truth that all who turn to God will be saved. This week as I was working on this passage, I was 
reminded of this great song uh, by John Newton where he, he, writes, uh, he writes these words. He says, and we're gonna sing this next week because I wasn't working far enough <laughs> ahead on this, but, but the, 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 the verse of the song says, let us wonder grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is justice smiles, justice smiles and asks no more. And what John Newton is pointing us to is the reality that is, it is on the cross where God's mercy and God's justice meet. What those words highlight for us is the truth that this passage is ultimately pointing us to, that we can't escape judgment because God is just, and yet we long for mercy. So how can a God who is truly just show mercy to sinners like us, and the answer ultimately is the cross. Because in the cross of Christ, what we see is that God bears the judgment for sin himself, and because, because Jesus took the penalty for our sin. And because, God, because Jesus took the penalty for our sin, God mercifully saves us just like he saved Rahab when she entrusted herself to God. The cross is a promise that wickedness will not win the day, but that wickedness will be dealt with and the cross is the promise that all who cry out to God for mercy will be saved from judgment. And so the cross is an invitation to you and to me to entrust yourself to God, to place yourselves in the arms of the God of justice and receive mercy instead of judgment. Fourth thing, lastly, finally, about the judgment of God here, and that is this, that the, the end of God's judgment is recreation. The end, meaning the telos, the goal of judgment, is recreation. What is happening here when God, I, I asked this already, but when God tells Israel to march around the city? Um, you know, march around the city once a day for six days. The seventh day, march around seven times. Be quiet the first six days, but then the last time when you're done, blow the trumpet and shout, and the walls of the city fall down. God is not giving like a magic formula for how to get inside something, right? And if we were to go and march around, I don't know, the block, you know, and do the same, like nothing would happen, right? This isn't a magic formula. So what is God doing? What's happening here is that God is demonstrating his power, and he's demonstrating his power um, in a powerful way through, simply through his words, right? The walls of the city fall down flat as a result of God's word, and this action takes place over the course of seven days. So what does that remind you of? God speaks in a powerful way, and over the course of seven days, something happens. Well, if you go back to Genesis 1, that's the same way Genesis 1 narrates God's creation of the world. Over the course of seven days, God acts in a powerful way, affecting change. He calls the entire cosmos, the heavens and earth, into existence simply by speaking over the course of seven days. And what that tells us, I think, here is this, that as God comes in judgment against the wickedness of Jericho, he is giving this land, his people, to be a renewed creation. 
that what, part of what God's doing here in these seven days exercising power through his word is he is initiating a new or renewed creation. God is taking the brokenness and wickedness of our world and he comes with judgment and mercy for the purpose of redemption in order to take something that was broken and make it new. There's a uh, Japanese art form called kintsugi in which a broken vessel like a bowl or a vase is glued back together using resin that has um, gold flakes like mixed into the lacquer or the resin. And what's happening in Kintsugi is that you'll see a vase or a bowl that has been destroyed and yet is actually made more beautiful because it has been redeemed. And that's a picture of the way that our God works. Kintsugi is a Japanese word that means golden joinery. And that's what God is doing when he gives this land his people, and that's what God is doing in his church today. It starts small, right? In the Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and what he was doing was giving them a small place on the earth where they would know God, and they would be with God, and then because they knew God and God had blessed them, that they would go out into all the world and bless the whole earth. And that's God's promise to Abraham as well. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land and I'm gonna bless you so that your descendants might bless the whole earth. And that's what God is doing here when he gives his people the promised land. He's giving them a land that's a small part of the whole earth to be the starting place from which God's blessing will overflow to the entire earth and that's what God is doing in his church today. He's calling together people like you and like me. He's calling us to hear that he is just and he is inviting us to entrust ourselves to his mercy. And as we respond to his mercy and justice in Christ, he is saving us and knitting us together as his family here on earth so that he might bless us and having blessed us, that blessing might flow, overflow into the ends of the earth. That's what God is doing. And he invites us to watch him and to be with him. And every once in a while, we've got a very minor part to play in what God is doing. And that's my prayer for Trinity. That as we enter into this new season of life together, it's not that we would be so convinced that we are right and that everybody else is wrong. It's that as we cry out for justice in our world, we would recognize that we cannot cry out for God's justice to come in this world without realizing that we also fall under the justice of God. But having received mercy in Christ instead of judgment, that we would be humbled. And that we would live as a people, a small, God God always starts small, right? That we would live as a group of people who have been so humbled that we have received mercy instead of judgment, that humility would characterize all that we would do, and God might use us as an outpost of his work of redemption for this time and in this place. Would you pray with me? Let's ask God to do that. Oh God, we thank you for this uh, incredible passage, how it so vividly uh, and viscerally connects with us. God, we confess that 
we read some of these words and we cringe. And sometimes we doubt that you are truly good. But God, having spent some time together this morning considering uh, the way that you are making yourself known and the way that you have brought your justice to bear in human history, God, would we cast ourselves upon Christ and plead for your mercy and experience tangibly and viscerally the goodness of the gospel. As we come to the table, would we taste and see that you are good, that your mercy triumphs over judgment, that we might live as humble people who are you, who, whom you are then using as agents of redemption in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.